0: Hey, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, we want to convince you that no matter what season you find yourself in, there is always hope.
1: talking about poetry in the Bible. How biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles.
2: And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here.
1: Now the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history.
2: Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals. You'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you're in his living room.
1: So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom.
2: Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God
1: placed humanity in a garden temple. And here, humans decide to define good
2: and evil on their own terms, and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they are planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful,
1: but who's it supposed to be?
2: Well, remember that story in Genesis after humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected
1: to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel.
2: Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. And he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so, David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer
1: coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times
2: and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people.
1: This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put
2: down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God.
0: thank the Bible Project for that uh, great teaching on the Psalms as a whole and the structure of the Psalms. And I don't know about you, but I'm inspired to read the Psalms afresh and anew uh, with those with those ideas in mind in terms of structure and teaching and, uh, you know, this idea of a literary temple uh, for those in exile. What, what a beautiful concept. If you, if you want to learn more and uh, see some more content from Bible Project, you can visit BibleProject.com. But, there's kind of a completeness, isn't there? There, There's a complexity, there's a competency, but there's a completeness to the canon that we call the Bible. And it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we have this library of books that have been compiled and put together that have consistency, that have an overarching story of redemption. And in a lot of ways, the Psalms serves as a microcosm of that. The Psalms themselves is a collection of poetry that was collected over and written over the course of about a thousand years, just under a thousand years, and is put together and it is put together with such thought and such care as it leads us on this journey of a literary temple, the story, the overarching story of redemption, salvation, and what's to come, the hope that we have. And in a lot of ways, that's going to inform. Uh, our time together in Psalm 23. So if you have a Bible, turn turn with me to Psalm 23. We're going to continue our series in Psalm 23 and uh, let's just turn there and then let's just open a prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are uh, so involved. Lord, even just looking at Scripture, we see how involved you are in leading us and revealing the Father, revealing the Son, revealing the Spirit. Um, Lord, we just thank you so much that you are so involved in this uh, creation that you designed and created. So, Lord, as we take this journey together today, Holy Spirit, as always, would you lead and guide us in truth? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to kind of take a bit of a journey. We're going to go line upon line, precept upon precept. We're going to kind of try to dig a little bit deep uh, to kind of plumb the depths of Psalm 23. Now, This may be a bit of an impossible endeavor because the reality is when it comes to art, when it comes to poetry, often there's kind of multiple layers as you dig and as you kind of sense the expression of the author because it is in some ways subjective, but in other ways it's very profoundly uh, intentional in the words and the concepts that are brought forward. And so if you have your Bible, we are jumping Psalm 23, we're going to continue that. But before we do, uh, we need to ask some questions. We need to ask some good hermeneutical questions. Hermeneutics is the study of how to study scripture. So how do we unpack scripture, particularly this genre of poetry, this genre that has imagery, this genre, as uh, Pastor Marcus said, is designed to not just uh, touch our intellect, but also to touch our heart and to touch our emotions. Because when we deal with, you know, narrative, historical documents, we treat it differently than when we delve into a genre kind of like poetry. And so we don't approach all of scripture the same in terms of our hermeneutic. Now, poetry is a medium that incorporates imagery. It stirs the senses, right? It has layers of meaning, uh, metaphor, allegory. Um, So here's the question. When studying a medium that opens us up to all of that emotional reaction, uh, feeling it, as opposed to just digesting it intellectually, how do we guard ourselves against like a misinterpretation of the text? And here's kind of a good basic rule of thumb. We don't read and interpret the Psalms independent or in a vacuum, right? We read and we interpret the Psalms in light of the rest of Scripture. And we look for the consistency across all of Scripture. And we can come to some terms in terms of what we feel the psalmist is trying to communicate through this art form. And so this is kind of how we do it. We do it in the safety of all of Scripture. So with some of those tools in our hands, let's jump into Psalm 23. We're going to go verses 3b to 4. Pastor Marcus did a great job of introducing us. And we're going to continue on from where he left off. Says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Last week we discovered a, a very interesting imagery of the good shepherd leading his flock, and I'm going to air quotes this, uh, to green pastures, right? Um, and if you were with us last week, or if you haven't, you go back and listen to Pastor Marcus. He really sets the tone for this. But the picture is not of rolling fields and lush grasses and the picture really in the Middle Eastern um, moment, the place where David would have written this, the picture was of a stony landscape. It was a picture of the dew of the morning dripping down off the rocks and in the crags, grass would grow and the shepherd would lead his flock from crag to crag, valley to valley to eat the tufts of grass that were Uh, Being produced in the shade and in the dripping of the morning dew. And so it's very different than the conceptualization that we may have living in Canada with our vast open landscapes. And so it's really about the dependence. There's a picture of dependence on listening to the shepherd's voice and walking that out. And it's in this context that the psalmist writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness. Right? So we're listening to the voice of the shepherd. We're walking that out. Now he's leading me in paths of righteousness. Now I don't want you to miss this. This is a declaration of what David knows to be true. Uh, so last week, Pastor Marcus alluded to the fact that most scholars see Psalm 23 as being written by David later in his life, looking back over his life. Okay? Okay. So he's later in his life, he has gained some experience, some perspective. And now he's looking back over his life and he writes Psalm 23. Now that would mean that he had to get from point A to B in terms of making this declaration of truth. right? So if we all go all the way back to Psalm 1, the writer of Psalm 1 says in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. This psalm, Psalm 1, would have been a part of the oral tradition of Israel. David would have known these verses. He would have known uh, this, this idea. That the Lord God knows the way of the righteous. And so this begins to serve as a foundational declaration for the book of Psalms and the rest of the Psalms. Later in Psalm 5 we know David wrote, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Okay, so it's been declared, Psalm 1, that he knows the paths of the righteous, he knows the way of the righteous. Now, David is taking this step of faith. He's stepping into the gap and he's saying, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Lead me in your righteousness. David is is taking this step of faith. He's leading into this thesis, this idea, this truth that God knows the way of the righteous. And so this progression of faith begins to play out throughout the Psalms. He turns to God and he says, lead me in that righteousness. The Faith Life Study Bible says this is Psalm 5 verse 8. The psalmist asks God to lead him. To be led by Yahweh is to enjoy his protection and safety. The path of righteousness is ultimately a path of safety and blessing. Now, don't miss this. In our passage, Psalm 23, David now looks back. He looks back over his life. He looks back over his experiences. He looks back over the faithfulness of God. And he says, he leads me. This is a declaration of of faith that has been proven out over a lifetime. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He is convinced that he has experienced the truth of that journey. He has seen God as faithful throughout his life. As as I kind of consider who may be watching today, I think there's potentially three categories of people. Uh, Perhaps you are hearing uh, this and you're exploring faith and you have questions and you're looking into Christianity and you're wondering what, what does the Bible say? What are the teachings of Jesus? You may be at a place right now where you're hearing, maybe for the very first time, that it's God who knows the ways of the righteous. And you're kind of curious about that. You're trying to suss that out, so to speak. God knows the way of the righteous. But there's others, perhaps you find yourself in that space where your next step is submitting yourself and and stepping into the gap of that in faith. And saying, Lord, lead me. Lead me in that righteousness. If you know the way of righteousness, then lead me in that righteousness. And then finally, there are others perhaps you're watching. And you're like David in Psalm 23. You're able to look back over your life. And you know that you know that you know that God indeed does lead in righteousness. Because you've experienced it. You've seen him refine you. And shape you You you've seen him be faithful to make paths straight before you you have been in the valley you have been in the hard times you have been in the impossible circumstances and you look back over your life and you see yes God does lead me in righteousness you're not testing that as a theory anymore you've lived it you've confirmed it and you are more convinced than other so here's my challenge to you third group Let your testimony and your witness of his faithfulness be known. Because there are others that are wrestling with stepping to the gap of that. And there are still others exploring. Does Yahweh, does God, does the creator of all things lead in righteousness? And your testimony has the power to convince or at the very least perhaps convince someone to take that next step of saying, Lord, lead me in that righteousness. I want to I walk that path that you've set before me. And God leads us into our design and our purpose. No, notice the humility of David here, uh, because we do have to ask the question, for what purpose does he lead us in righteousness, right? And I guess in our society, in our time, in our day, we very quickly can go, it's for our own benefit. and. That's that's part of it. That is. That's absolutely part of it. Because God loves you. He wants to see you walk in your design. He wants to see you walk righteously in the right way. In the way that he's created and designed you. But But it's more than just about you. And this is the part where... Uh, maybe there's a disconnect in our society where we're very hyper individualistic and we're all about us and our thing and our expression and how people perceive us and all those things. But Here's David's words. He's king. He's reached the top of the top. And notice what he says. He says, lead me in paths of righteousness for, okay, this is the purpose now, for his name's sake. For God's name's sake. Not for mine. And David makes a declaration of his sense of duty. And he gives us a clue in this moment of of what he knows about his own design. His own purpose. And here's, here's a fundamental truth about humanity. Your purpose, my purpose, fundamentally, at its very basis, is to be a worshiper. And to walk in righteousness, to walk in the ways of God, is to Worship God as our creator, as our king, and as our Lord. And so as we live out that life, it's not just about us. It's very secondarily about us. It's very much about walking in that purpose of being a worshiper and pointing people to Jesus. But even in the midst of this reality, David acknowledges the tensions that we face in this life. How many know this life... Uh, is not easy at times. How how many have been through the valley? You've been through the the ringer. You've been through the hard times. Life is throwing curveballs at you. And So let's continue into that tension a little bit. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now let's, let's break this down a little bit. David acknowledges the valleys of life, but he, he acknowledges it in a way that he leans into so much hope here. Now there are a number of ways that we can kind of define or look at what David means by death here in this psalm. We, we, can, we can apply it to literal death, to literal dying. We, we can, but we can also apply it to sin, to sin which leads to death, a spiritual death, an eternal death. And then we can also kind of pull back another layer, and we can apply it to the, to the extent in which the broken world around us, external to us, can at times break into our life and cause hurt and pain on us. And so kind of these are three elements in which we can kind of define what David means about Death, but, but I want you to notice something so profound here in the way that David says this. D- David doesn't write, even though I walk through the valley of death. Does he? What, what word does he uh, describe this valley of death? He says, even though I walk through the shadow. And Matthew Henry writes in response to this word play. But even in this. There are words which lessen the terror. It is but the shadow of death. The shadow of a serpent will not sting, nor the shadow of a sword kill. And this becomes, in a lot of ways, a prophetic verse that echoes all through scripture. We see this concept, this idea of death losing its. Physical space in terms of impact. And it becomes just a shadow. Uh, Isaiah 25 verse 8. Isaiah prophesies. He will swallow up death forever. And of course he is referring to Jesus the Messiah. The one who has come. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I love this. He will swallow up death Forever, And of course, this is the blessed hope we have as the church. We are looking forward to this day when he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. But then we also see Paul in, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? And in this life, we acknowledge, we have to acknowledge the pain because we feel it. We know it. We sense it. We live it. We acknowledge the pain. We acknowledge the tension that the shadow of death brings. But it will not and does not have to destroy us. And this is the hope we walk in. It is but a shadow. This is true of death in all its forms. Literal sin leading to spiritual death and the external brokenness of our world impacting on us. It doesn't have to win because Jesus has already won. And this is the power. This is the hope. This is the overarching theme and story of the redemption of humanity. All through the scriptures. But this doesn't mean that we don't carry the weight of death in our current reality. The shadow of death still impacts us. You know, this week in our community, many of us in our community are... Mourning and grieving the tragic passing of a young lady from our community. And this, of course, as a church and as a community and as as a community of faith, we are praying for the Miller family who have uh, suffered tragic loss. Many of us also carry the weight and the impact of sin. We know all too well sin that leads to death, that leads to destruction. And so we know the impact of the consequences of that. We carry that. We live that. We have seasons and moments. And we all carry to some degree or another the weight of external brokenness. The sin of this world breaking into our lives. And wounding us and hurting us. And bringing pain. We know the realities and the tension in which we live as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So the psalmist is in no way making light of death in all its forms. But is simply reminding us that there is a journey to be had. That will ultimately see us through in a way that that experience will not destroy us. That experience will not break us. There is always, always, can I just capital always. Hope. There is a way through the valley. There are paths to righteousness. There is a way and a journey. You journey through the valley. Paths of righteousness. Journey through. And this is a journey we take both in proximity to God. Because his presence is with us always. And in community. With those that he has called us together with. In like-mindedness around Jesus. Paul teaches that we mourn with those who mourn or or, or some translations say we weep with those who weep. Friends, some of us even this week have wept with those who weep and that is the power of presence. There's something so powerful about the ministry of presence, not having the words to say, not having trite little things to express, but just being present. And the beauty and the hope that's found in the Christian faith is God is with you. And so are his people. And we journey together and we're never alone in that valley. Jesus taught in Matthew 5 verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why? Because his presence will be with you. Because the God and the creator of all things leans into your brokenness. And wraps his arms of love around you. And is present with you. And there's a ministry of grace. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. So let's be reminded that it's a journey. It's not a one-time event. It's not a... Moment and everything's okay. It's a journey. We journey through the valley. In the book of James, we read, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, our sin leads to death, but it doesn't have to define us, it doesn't have to lead us to that ultimate death, to that spiritual death, to that eternal death. That was the ministry of Jesus. He came to make a way of escape for us. And and, and Jesus has overcome death. Not just death in the grave. Not just literal death. But he has overcome that spiritual death. That separation that we had from our creator, our God. So let's remember it's a journey. Even as we deal with our sin and our brokenness, it's a journey. We take step by step. But we do it in proximity to Jesus. And we do it in proximity to his people and we walk through that valley now i want to bring some balance to this moment this does not mean that this world um can't hurt us deeply like i think sometimes there's a form of christianity that um like it's an ostrich christianity so it's it's kind of like you know ostriches when pain things uh Threat, all of that comes, what do they do? They put their head in the sand and just, just pretend like nothing's happening, right? And there, there's sometimes a form of Christianity where we feel like we're lacking faith or uh, there is a, a weakness in us in terms of our faith if we acknowledge the pain, if we acknowledge the hurt, if we acknowledge the wounds and the scars and the consequences that we endure in this world. That's, that's not Christianity. The reality is we acknowledge that there is a valley. We acknowledge that there is a shadow of death. We acknowledge that it's hard. That sometimes it leaves lasting impact on our lives in this world. And so this, this doesn't mean that th- this world can't hurt us deeply. It does not mean that our sin activity can't leave us with wounds and scars for life as as we carry the consequences. It does not mean that we won't be persecuted or or, or even for some, martyred. Or that the brokenness of this world won't impact us in a way that feels so devastating and unfair. It doesn't mean that these things won't happen. But here's what it does mean. Those moments won't destroy us. Those seasons won't destroy us. Some of you need to hear this. The season that you find yourself in is not going to define your future. It's not going to define your future. We are but a wisp. We are but a vapor in this world. Eternity sits before us. And so no matter what happens, God will see you through. And ultimately, he will see you through. There's always hope. Death has been defeated. And to believe that is to have hope that the journey through the valley of the shadow of death will see you out to the other side. Now in this life, you might walk with a limp. You might carry some scars. But all of that will one day be healed. So how can David be so sure of this? Well, he gives his assurance in the remainder of the verse here. And he makes this declaration in verse 4b. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will fear no evil. I will not fear no Death. I will not fear sin. I will not fear those that would seek to hurt me. Why? Because you, God, creator, my king, my Lord, you are with me. You are the good shepherd. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is where I want to conclude today. The rod and the staff... Because when we look into the concept of the rod and the staff, we may create some tension. Uh, It may create some tension for us. In the Hebrew, the word for staff would often be kind of interchanged between rod or staff. So in a lot of places, you'll see the word kind of used interchangeably. But here, David wants to make a point. He wants to bring in both definitions, rod and staff. So the staff was a shepherd's walking stick. This was used for leaning on, for support, uh, for sure-footedness on uneven terrain. At times it would be used to prop up an outer garment to create kind of some shade as they tended the fields during the day. But the rod was something a little bit different. The rod was a shorter stick or club. All right? So the rod was used for some different functions when it came to actually tending the sheep. It was used to care for the sheep, for sheep, tend them, to guide them. It would be held out and the sheep would be counted. So the sheep would pass under the rod and they would be counted. As the shepherd uh, with care wanted to make sure all of the flock was accounted for. But it was also used to discipline the sheep. It was also used to discipline the sheep. And then finally, the rod was used to also guard against predators and those that would come to kill and destroy the flock. And so this is the function of the rod. The function of the rod is very multifaceted. The staff concept brings a lot of gentleness, support, safety, guidance, shade. The rod is a little more diverse in its meaning. Now, this may seem a little bit counterintuitive. How does the rod comfort me? How how does this concept of the rod bring comfort? Particularly when it comes to discipline. The guiding and the discipline of the flock. Now, let's consider again righteousness. Righteousness could be defined as living in right standing. In other words, living according to the design of our Creator. So living in the way God originally intended. And so this is the paths of righteousness. To live out a righteous and holy life against the standard of who God is. And I would argue that there's a deep comfort in the knowledge of a creator. Who set in motion all things. Who then leans in and is intimately involved in leading us and guiding us. In paths of righteousness, even if it means disciplining us from time to time. Uh, discipline is such an interesting word, particularly in our society. Uh, I, I won't get into it, but it's just it's just an interesting moment in time for our society in the West when it comes to discipline, when it comes to uh, external consequences being metered out, particularly to kids and teens and and all that and, and parental duties and etc. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of complexity, but here's what scripture says about discipline. And I hope that this kind of sets a tone as we consider God as our shepherd. In Hebrews 12, five to 11, says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I want you to underline that. If you have your Bible, Hebrews 12, underline that. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? those paths of righteousness for the moment. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Later we have this perspective like David looking back over life and seeing the good shepherd and writing a Psalm like Psalm 23. He leads me in paths. Of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, death in literal, death as my sin, death as the sin as others impacting me, though I'm in that valley and that shadow is overcast upon me, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, your protection, your discipline, your guidance, and your support and your uh, a shelter are with me. And so David has this moment as he looks back, and says, friends, it's all worth it. God is good, he is a good shepherd. So I wanna conclude with this. This valley that we've been talking about is both a micro and, it kinda both has a micro and macro expression. And what I mean by that is we all endure seasons when the shadow seems darker, uh, when it contrasts more terribly around us. And this may be micro-expressions of the valley of uh, of the shadow of death, those moments that we walk through hard times, hard seasons, moments we don't understand, and we have to just look to God and trust that He is going to see us through. And so we go and we live life and we have seasons and we walk through and we look back and we see the faithfulness of god but even in those moments sometimes we come out of those valleys and we have some scars we have some wounds we we walk with a limp and that that may last for an entire lifetime here in this world but that's where we get to this macro expression that we all, all, as long as we have breath in this world before Jesus comes, we are all living in the valley of the shadow of death to some degree. But there's this blessed hope that there's something beyond this. There is a ultimate leading through the valley to the place of hope and restoration. And all things being made new. And so this is, this is, this is such hope because those, those scars, those wounds... Those valleys, those experiences, those pains that we carry, they are not going to define us and they are not going to destroy us for a lifetime in eternity. He's gonna come and he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes and we are gonna enter into the perfection of what his intention was for us. Those paths of righteousness, they lead somewhere. And so we have such a blessed hope. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, in this season, particularly of our church, Lord, we think of uh, families that are going through devastating loss. Lord, we thank you that your presence is there for them. Lord, we ask that you would come alongside And that you would comfort. That you would bring your Holy Spirit. um, And you would walk them through the journey. Not the one time event. But the journey and the process. To the other side of this moment in this valley. But we recognize that all of us have moments of sin. Seasons where we don't walk in right standing. We don't walk in the ways in which you designed us to walk. Holy Spirit, would you see us through? Would you would you take moments to discipline us? Would you take moments to guide us? And Lord, may in those moments, we know that you do it because you love us and that you don't wanna see the valley become the place in which we camp out, but rather it become the place that we journey through. Lord, we pray for those who carry wounds and have been deeply impacted by the external forces of this world around them, the sin and the brokenness of the world around that crashed into their lives and brought hurt and pain and woundedness. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, even in this moment, remind them that you are with them, that you will see them through, that this will not define them for eternity, that this will not destroy them, but Lord, that there is always hope. And even as we carry scars out of those seasons, Lord, we are reminded by those scars of your faithfulness, your love, and your healing touch. And so, Lord, we thank you that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because you, Good Shepherd, are with us and your rod and your staff will comfort us. And so, Lord, we believe this, we lean into this, And we pray, Lord God, that even those that are the weakest among us, Lord, that you would stir their faith and you'd stir their hope today. And that we would walk this out together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. And we look, look forward to continuing this series in Psalm 23. God bless.